This week, Ed Davis, the former commissioner of the Boston Police, takes us through his journey through law enforcement leading up to the Boston Marathon bombing. I went down to meet the state police uh, at the DA's office, and when I said Charlie Rasso, they, they pulled out pictures. Bobby Long was a lieutenant at the time. He pulled out photographs of Whitey Bulger sitting with Charlie Rasso at the garage uh, uh, in, in the North End. So um, I got sucked into a, an incredibly complex um, series of wiretaps and, um, and big cases that resulted in arresting, you know, McDermott and Vlahakis, but also um, knocking over a, uh, an armored car uh, robbery team. Um, we took out um, a, a few people that actually... Uh, B- Billy Bonowski, who ended up killing Jackie McDermott over there, sh- assassinating him and shooting his son. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Welcome back, everybody, to Game of Crimes. I am... The man of the hour, the man of the day, the man of the minute, Morgan Wright. And I'm here literally with my co-host and partner in crime. Steve Murphy, who, I, you know, my job is just to keep him from walking out in traffic and find his way home at nighttime. Yes, that's why we have a tracker on you there, Murph. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, everybody, welcome back. This is going to be episode 16. But before we start talking about episode 16, let's talk about episode 15, James Murr Murray, we had the guy from Impractical Jokers. I mean, this was a little bit of a deviation for us, Steve, but I thought it was pretty... We had lots of great response, lots of great comments from people. I've seen pictures in the Facebook groups, people buying his book, The Stowaway. So I thought it was kind of neat that we get a star of stage and screen to come on our little old podcast. Woohoo! You never know. You never know what's going to happen on Game of Crimes. That's all about a game, right? So, and, and the, you know, you're right. It was way out of our lane here as far as true crime, except that book. And you know what? Murr has a psychological issue, I think, because I'm reading that book and it just scares the crap out of me. He did. Like I said, we tried to get him to confess, you know, on a, on a podcast <laughs> going out to four people. But those four people are very influential. Let me tell you. And you guys know who you are. <laughs> no, it was, he's a hoot too. And it was a lot of fun talking to him and. Um, and like you t- you said before, he didn't hesitate. He's like, guys, here's my home phone number. You know, I got family down in Virginia. Let's get together for lunch, dinner. Whenever I'm passing through, I'll give you a call. Just what a sweet guy. Yeah, I just wonder if he does that for all the boys, you know? Well, he probably blows smoke up our ears and we fell for it. But <laughs> it's okay, <laughs> but we felt, we felt good about it, but that's okay, guys. Hey, look, uh, anyway, we thought it was a great episode. We've got some fun coming up, but before we get into this fun, let's just do a little quick bit of housekeeping. First of all, keep going to Apple, keep going wherever you listen to the podcast. Please give us five stars, and I'll tell you why. It helps move us up the rankings. More people can hear us, and the more people hear us, the longer we can stay on the air. That's in case if you don't like us, then you shouldn't be listening to the podcast. So, But if you do like us, and you do keep listening, give us that five stars. It's magic. We don't know why. It's Disney. It's David Copperfield. It's Penn & Teller all rolled into one. Please like us. Please. 
Please like Please us. Please like us. And uh, head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com for everything. We've got our merch link there now too. So we just, I'm just getting ready. To, I just told Murph before we started, I've got a couple new po- uh, coffee cups. I got to get him his way. We've seen Sandy Salvato, uh, or Salvato, our uh, resident mafia queen. She's got the cups. She's got the shirts. We've seen it from other people. So keep ordering that stuff. Woo-hoo. Get on our mailing list. That really helps us be able to reach out to you when we have special events that might not go through social media. But speaking of social media, follow us there, Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. But Steve, I'm very excited about Patreon because by the time this episode comes out, we will have done our live stream where you and I put training day with Denzel Washington through the narcometer. That's going to be a fun one. Oh, you got you got to come and listen to this one because I watched it again last night with my wife, and <laughs> towards the end, Connie saying, "Why in the hell are we watching this?" <laughs> <laughs> well, and we have to tell you folks too, for you folks listening out there, Patreon, we did make a command decision. We had Die Hard on there, but as we all agree, Die Hard is the greatest Christmas movie ever made. So we have to re- we we just made a decision. We're going to review it uh, for Christmas. Uh, it, <laughs> Die Hard's like a fine wine; it shouldn't be reviewed before its time, Steve. That's right. And that's just what you want at the holiday season is death and destruction in a towering building. <laughs> yeah. Nothing says Christmas like Hans Gruber falling off Nakatomi Plaza. So, <laughs> all right. And guys, but again, support us at Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We've got this. We've got a lot of other fun stuff uh, going on over there. We've got episode five of The Real Narcos talking about The Real Narcos coming out. The most in-depth interviews with Stephen Murph ever recorded anywhere in this universe or on the planet. Am I right, Murph? Am I right? Am I right? You're right. And I guarantee it's never going to happen again. (laughs) That was like 14 hours of recording. (laughs) Yeah. Spread out over 27 days because we had technical issues with JP and, uh, Yep, he had that cold yep. spell down in uh, down there in Texas. The first oh, time yeah. he ever had to light his fireplace up, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, and plus he was doing some remodeling in his house. It was just a, a you yeah, know, it was a Charlie Foxtrot, as they say. That's right. I call it Murphy's Law. So that's why you want to be on Patreon. All the great fun stuff happening there. And if you just want to do a, just a pause for the cause and give us some quick support, just send us uh, go to PayPal.com and use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or PayPal.me slash Game of Crimes whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and show us your love. Show us your love, Steve. There. That's, that's all you get. <laughs> uh, you <laughs> know, that's not but, for you. I'm that's glad for you guys could see that. That's right. Now, remember, folks, before we get started on this, quick disclaimer, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the cases and the stories seriously, but... We never take ourselves serious. That's why we like to have fun. That's right. And speaking of having fun, do you know what time it is, Steve? I think it's embarrassed Murph time. Well, that's that's standard every day. But t- right now, we're going to call it Get Ready for Small, Small Town, Town Police Waters. All right. Hey, we actually have, uh, we've gotten a couple more folks are sending us stories. In fact, they're sending us so many stories, Steve, I've got to spread them out over episodes. But the first one we have cool. comes from Roger Benson via Facebook about Strongsville, Ohio, population 44,600. So it's, it's kind of a small town. Yeah. So, Steve, on August 25th, police were dispatched to a Pearl Road parking lot where a woman was locked inside her white Nissan Altima. Okay. Just think about this. She was locked inside her white Nissan Altima. A third party had called police to say the woman was locked inside due to a dead key fob, which wouldn't unlock the Nissan. The woman was rescued by her brother, who brought an extra key fob to free her from the Altima. Now, my thought was, 
do your fucking door locks not work? Uh, Can you just pull the door handle and open the car yourself? So the first question is, how old or how young is this person that doesn't know what that little button on the door is? I just pull the handle. How I mean, how would you open? Oh my! This person should have should be have to be retested to keep their driving privileges, or just take the damn things away. Uh, if they can't figure that out, they don't need to be behind the wheel. Oh my God! Okay, Cal. Well, th- hey, thanks for sending that in because that's funny. Thank you, Roger Benson. Now, <laughs> next one comes from someplace called Medina. Police, Steve. Police went to a North Street address just after midnight, November twentieth. After getting a call about a disturbance, which, you know, that's standard fare. You responded to those. I did, right? You know, officers found an engaged couple. They're arguing about what time Kmart closed. Police told them the store's hour and the couple calmed down. Wow, that's a reason to have an argument. It's not about money. It's not about cheating on your husband or your wife. You know? What time does the Kmart really? I don't know. Are the doors open or closed? Can you walk in? You know, what does the sign say? This our freaking world just screwed up right now. Well, Steve, I got one for you. You think that's screwed up? Remember the old saying about bringing a knife to a gunfight? Oh yeah. Man tries armed robbery with knife in gun store. Oh, now he gets the cake. He wins the cake today. What a moron! A 57-year-old Greenfield man was shot in the ch- he and he paid the price. He was shot in the chest Thursday during an armed robbery attempt at Buckhorn Guns. On West Ramsey Avenue, police said the suspect walked into the store and asked to see several handguns just before 5 p.m. Thursday after handing the pistols back to the... See, now there's a flaw in your thinking. You handed the pistols back. (laughs) Then he pulled out a buck knife with the serrated edge and demanded the owner give him one of the guns and some ammunition. Well, the owner did give him some ammunition. He gave him one round right to the chest. That boy left that building heavier than when he came in, didn't he? (laughs) About one ounce. (laughs) This is why we say never bring a knife to a gunfight, you know? Oh. Wait, and every gun store I've been in throughout the entire United States, the people behind the counters are wearing guns. They're on, this is a gun store. Oh, my God. All right. We've got another oh one, too. Gary Warden Jr. sent this, this at our Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com address. Man charged after efforts to break in to City Hall to get drugs back failed. This is from Lock Haven. Pennsylvania, population 9,083. Steve, a Clinton County man was charged after police said they caught him as he attempted to break into City Hall in downtown Lock Haven. Why? Because officers said Lyric Matthew Wynn, 20, of Lock Haven told officers he wanted his drugs back. According to a report, officers previously confiscated the narcotics. He damaged the suspect, the rocket scientist, damaged three electronic card readers and two doors as he attempted to gain entry into the building. Fortunately, Steve, he was successful at gaining entry into the building because they arrested his ass and threw him in jail in the same building. (laughs) Hey, I'm not in enough trouble for drug trafficking. I'm going to go break into the police evidence room, which is the most guarded room in any police. Today's the day of idiots. I'm telling you, man. Great stories, though. Keep those coming. That's fantastic. Gary, that that was excellent. Gary, man, that made my day. Population, (laughs) 9,083. This dude is going places. He's going to prison. (laughs) Salute. That's right. (laughs) All right, Steve, now to close this off, what year was this? I got a good one, too. I I hit Canada on this one, right? Oh, good, good. So this comes out of the Gazette, out of Montreal, Quebec, Canada. It's not Quebec. It's Quebec. You have to say it like a Quebec, like the Quebecians do. Quebec. So this is on April 25th. Now, I won't tell you the year yet. Let me just read you the headline and the quick story. So this comes from the Northwest News. The kind of three stories are an anonymous donor's generous act, anniversary of Fish Creek, and an Indian murderer. Well, 
The main part of this says, Sergeant Major Kirk of the Northwest Mounted Police, which for you folks out there was the original name of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, arrived yesterday from Regina, not, don't, <laughs> Regina, Saskatchewan. I was saying thing. Regina. He arrived yesterday from Regina, having in charge the name Day Thunder, the Indian who shot his wife as Quapel, I believe that is how it's pronounced, Quapel, Quapel, last fall for which the crime he has been sentenced to three years in the penitentiary. That was it. And then in another case, H.J. Buckingham, who embezzled the funds of the Canadian Pacific Railway uh, Friendly Aid Society, was released yesterday from custody, the society not wishing to prosecute. So we have Day Thunder, an Indian in Canada that was arrested by Sergeant Major Kirk of the Northwest Mountain Police. Steve, what year was it? And I'm going to mix this up again. Was it April 25th, 1907, April 25th, 1887, or April 25th, 1897? Oh, gosh, I can't even keep them straight when you do them in a row chronologically. Um, it's got to be in the 1800s. Let's go 1897. <clears throat> Wrong. Oh, 1887. But you, you're right. It was in the 1800s. I'll give you. I'll give you half credit for that one. <laughs> you know, I think I'm probably getting these right, and I don't know the difference because you never show me the questions. I think you're blowing smoke, dude. It's. I'll, I'll send you the. I'll send you the Google Doc when we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> but if I ever go to Canada, I'm not sure I'm going to go to Regina. Uh, well, <laughs> nothing could be finer than to be in oh, whoa, whoa, Regina whoa, whoa. in the morning. Whoa. Regina, Saskatchewan. Okay. Anyway, so <laughs> thus endeth the reading for today. All right. So, thank hey, but goodness. Let's, yeah, thank, thank goodness. goodness. Well, hey, let's get into this now, too, because I think we're about to have a little fun here. Um, and, and I say fun in a good way, because this guy has been a friend of mine for quite a few years. He's the former commissioner of the Boston Police Department, Ed Davis. And when you hear him talk, Ed has a Boston He has a Massachusetts accent. So uh, we, had to, we had to bring in the official interpreter, Mark Wahlberg, which... Ed Davis happens to know Mark Wahlberg. Now, I will tell you one thing about this episode, though, just from a quality issue. Um, I was, I thought I was being smart, and we we actually ended up playing some recordings. Ed had never heard of the scene and, and the aftermath and some stuff, some of the actual real radio traffic. You guys are going to hear this. Well, I was being smart, Steve, and I thought I had it all set up. Instead, the software we use records each of us on separate tracks, except uh-huh. this time... The way I had it set up, unfortunately, it recorded everything onto one track. Well, we couldn't go back and re-record the episode. So if you guys hear a little bit of quality issues, yeah, that's what us. it is. And we were rookies back then, too. Still, it was in April when actually we were recording this uh, pretty close to the anniversary of Patriots Day uh, when this happened. So just work with us on the quality. Remember now, we all getting better. But those we, we recorded a lot of these episodes early on because we wanted to get access to the people. So... I say that, just work with us on the quality, but listen to the story. This is a fantastic story. Ed is really great about uh, telling this, Steve. I mean, we all know about the events, the Boston uh, Marathon, and uh, we all kind of have our stories around it. But, I mean, Ed was just such a great guy to spend three and a half, almost four hours with us. It's It was a very much an honor for me to be on there with him. I never had the opportunity to meet him. He was so personable. He didn't hesitate to tell the story. Uh, you know, and... and it's kind of a surprise. I don't know if we want to give it up or wait till after they listen to the story. Yeah, let's not give away anything yet. You gotta, you gotta listen to the podcast. And I don't even know what Murph's gonna say, but I'm just stopping him right there. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine because it was, it was a revelation for me. You know, the, I knew about the bombing at the time and what I saw in the movie with Mark Wahlberg. And by the way, I'm a Mark Wahlberg fan, so hope you are too. He supports a lot of great causes. Um, not particularly a fan of Marky Mark, but uh, that was in his earlier days. So. 
but good guy. I'm, I'm, I'm behind him 100%. Well, folks, so I think you guys are going to really enjoy this. This is the real story. This is going to be a two-parter, part one uh, on Monday, part two on Thursday, as always. And so you guys sit back. I think it's time now, Steve. Are you ready to play the biggest game of all, the game of crimes? Get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Here we go with Game of Crimes. Come on in. Well, I'll tell you, folks, we have been talking to people involved in some of the biggest cases that are out there. And the nice thing about it is between Steve and I, we tend to know a lot of the people through one form or fashion. And this gentleman I got to know quite a few years ago courtesy of the International Association of Chiefs of Police and the work he was doing there. And what he did during the time of the Boston Marathon bombing, his response then, and the way that he pulled the city together and the work that he did. I got to tell you, just from personal as a cop, just, you know, one cop to another, you're a cop's cop. I want to thank you for being on. Former commissioner of the Boston police (laughs) and personal (laughs) trainer to Mark Wahlberg. Ed yeah, Davis. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much, Steve. And uh, thank you for that introduction, Morgan. Uh, it's been a pleasure working with you over the years, and it's so good to see you again. You know, we have the we have the the honor of having a lot of America's heroes on here. Well, actually, some of the world's heroes because we talk to law enforcement around the world. And Ed, it's and not blow smoke just because you're. I'm looking at you on the screen right now, but uh, it's a true honor to have you on here. I love. Uh, you know, what happened in Boston at the marathon was horrible. We'll get into that. But I love the response of the police, of you, of the public. That was outstanding. And Boston Strong is still one of the best mottos I've heard come out of anything. I love it. Yeah, I do, too. And and it was it happened, you know, it came to my attention a couple of days into the investigation. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a great description of what's going on here. Because there were so many people involved in this. Um, I had a tremendous team. We had been working together. Uh, for almost seven years at that point. And um, when you add in the way that all the first responders uh, showed up and did did their job, uh, the medical people and the, the lives that they saved, and then uh, how the community stood up and, and assisted us during the pursuit and, and supported us afterwards, it really was a unique situation and experience. Well, we're going to get into the heavy stuff in a minute, but I got to go back to what I ask you. Is it true? Can you confirm or deny you actually did personal training with Mark Wahlberg out at his fancy gym in California? (laughs) I can only say that I was at his house, uh, looked at his gym, uh, looked at his basketball court outside, uh, but it was was too late for me to work out and too early for him to work out, so... (laughs) Yeah, we'll get into that in a little bit because this gets into Patriots Day and the filming, man. But that's this is cool, man. You know, get to hang out. How many people get to say they hang out with Marky Mark? You know, Mark Wahlberg. You know, uh, his mother passed away today, actually. So, oh, yeah. uh, sending our sending our sympathy. Uh, a lovely family, and uh, and she was a lovely woman. As we're recording this, is actually it's just uh, a few days past the anniversary of the uh, Boston Marathon bombing, too. Patriots Day. Um, which is the third Monday, right? In April is when they normally do it, and that one just happened to be on a Monday. So, right. Well, hey, as we always do when we get studs like you, uh, you know, on our podcast, we want to find out what in the hell possessed you to become a cop. I mean, I know it's the Boston thing. I know it's the, uh, you know, the Massachusetts thing. There's a lot of, uh, I mean, there's just a rich history of people involved in law enforcement, you know, throughout that area. And I am wearing my Notre Dame stuff, so I have my Irish stuff on today. I just wanted you to see there. Yeah. But yeah. what possessed you to, what path did you take to get into law enforcement? 
Well, it was fairly simple. Uh, my, my dad was a police officer, so uh, that was uh, that. That was a, he set a tremendous example uh, of service to the community and community policing, and and so I got to watch that as a child. Um, which, which town? Uh, in Lowell, Lowell, okay. Massachusetts. He was uh, he was a patrol officer and then became a detective, and a uh, tremendous guy. He he was really well respected. Um, passed away young, but he was uh, a, a tremendous. Uh, friend of the community. So uh, I had that model. um, And I never wanted to work inside an office, I wanted to be outside on the street. So that was another, that was another thing that appealed to me about it. And I got to say, I went to St. Michael's grammar school. So St. Michael is the patron saint of police offices. And I think that might add a role in it too. (laughs) Right on. (laughs) Well, how how old was your dad when he passed? Uh, He was uh, 54. Was it line of duty or was it health related or something else? Uh, health related, but in Massachusetts, uh, it's considered a line of duty death. So he, um, he 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 died of a heart attack. How old were you at the time? I was uh, twenty one, uh, just about to turn twenty two, and um, at the he he passed away at the beginning of the summer. At the end of the summer, I ended up going into the academy, ironically taking his place. Uh, that that vacancy was what they used to lie on me. So no kidding. Oh, yeah, wow. yeah. Were you now? Did you were you able to get the same badge number, or did they give you a different badge number? They had retired his badge number, but they reactivated it for me after I was on. So I, I did uh, have that number, and then um, my uh, my son is using it now in, in the same police department. Oh, awesome! What, what's the hey, badge number? Three hundred three. And you know what? Uh, a lot of people that are listening to us probably don't understand the significance of that, but it's tradition. You know, it's yeah. it's uh, we we always call the law enforcement culture a family, and here is a family within a family by you know your father, you, and now your son carrying yeah. on the legacy. So that is a big deal with us. You know, yeah. DEA when a DEA if a child or a family member becomes an agent and their father or uncle or whoever was an agent, the honor is that older family member gets to present the badge to the newbie coming on. That's so a big yeah. deal. Yeah, yeah, similar, similar to us. And my brother was a cop in the same department in Lowell, so he became a sergeant and retired a few years ago. So it's quite a tradition in the in the family. Who's older, nice. you or your brother? I'm the oldest. Yeah, plus you were ended up being commissioner of Lowell, so you got to boss him around legitimately, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but all the guys like him, so <laughs> he's got that on me. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. So um, what did you do? Did you go to college after high school? Did you do something else? How did you get into, what was your gap between high school and uh, joining Lowell? Well, I um, I went to college. I went to Northeastern uh, for a year, um, and and ended up uh, falling asleep at my uh, at my de- at my desk at school, largely because I, I was working late nights. I had I had secured a job as a special police officer in a hospital, and I loved that work so much that I I had to make a decision. So I ended up <clears throat> dropping out after the first year and um, and concentrating my efforts on learning the job on you know working in a inner city hospital emergency room was quite an education. And, oh, yeah. uh, and so I did that for, the, uh, for four years bef- until I get on the police department in Lowell. Give us some, give us some background on Lowell. Where is it located at? What's the city like? You know, how big is it? Give us a little bit of the context and the, sure. and the details. Right. Uh, so Lowell uh, is located 25 miles north of the city of Boston, uh, right near the New Hampshire border in Massachusetts. Uh, it's a city of about uh, a little over 100,000 people. 
people. It was the first planned industrial community in the country. So uh, they used water power from the confluence of the Merrimack and Concord Rivers uh, to power textile looms. And uh, for the first 50 years that Lowell was uh, was in existence, uh, they brought in um, farm girls from all over New England to work in an industrial uh, application here in the city. Um, and so... It, it was quite an innovative place, uh, and then uh, it fell into, in the 60s particularly, uh, the textile industries moved out. They went down south, so uh, we had a, a tough run when I was a little kid, and uh, and basically, it's it's very much an immigrant city. It was built uh, first with the Irish and Greeks, uh, and, and, and then later with uh, uh, Puerto Rican communities and uh, Dominican, Colombian um you know, I saw it, Cambodian it's, it's in very, there too. Well, the Cambodians were the last group to arrive in in the 1980s, and they really do make up the majority of the city, uh, the majority of the minority groups of the city. It's like 30 percent of the population, and they're lovely people, tremendously adding to the history of the diverse history of the city. Were many of them refugees out of the Vietnam War, like the from the Khmer Rouge and other folks like that? Yes. Um, Chester Atkins was the congressman here uh, when when that uh, was happening during when the Khmer Rouge were were reigning, and um, there were refugee camps in in Thailand, um, and uh, and he he actually visited there and uh, and and brought uh, the first immigrants back here to the city, and that happened here. It happened in Long Beach, California, and those were the two main cities in the country that the Cambodian refugees. Uh, migrated to, and um, and we were very lucky to have them because they came here at a time when the when the white population was was actually leaving. So we would have uh, our population would have been in the seventy thousands if it hadn't been for the Cambodian refugees. Well, wow, and that kind of aligns with the decline in a lot of the industrial uh, production, you know, and the uh, things like that, right? Because was that on a decline at that time, or was that uh, going up? No, it was it was declining. The only the only bright spot we had in Lowell was. Uh, uh, Dr. Ann Wang founded his business here, Wang Laboratories. Uh, so th they were headquartered here in the city, and almost everyone that you knew worked at Wang uh, back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, they hit tough times, and, and that, that really uh, killed, the, uh, <clears throat> killed the city economically. But we've had a whole series of those things, you know, ups and downs over the decades, and that was just the latest example of it. So talk about applying now. You said you worked at the hospital as a special police officer. Talk about uh, applying then for Lowell. Was there anywhere else you wanted to go or what, was that it, that you wanted to be at Lowell uh, PD? Did you look at anywhere else or was it Lowell was the only shot you were taking? No, Lowell was uh, really where I wanted to be. I, I knew a lot of the people on the police department. Uh, I, I was interested in, in, in being a police officer in my hometown. I remember one day <clears throat> driving out the uh, the highway with my dad, and uh, a car raced by us. And he was talking to me about being an FBI agent because I, I was going to school, and, and he was suggesting I go into the federal service. So uh, as the car went by, I said to him, hey, Dad, if I was an FBI agent, could I chase that car and stop it? And he said, "No, they don't. They don't do motor vehicle enforcement." And I was like, "All right, I want to be a local cop." <laughs> Probably a smart decision on your part, was, too, right? Yeah, I suppose it was. I was 13 at the time, so I was oh. a little naive to these. Oh, you're things. overqualified for the FBI then. Sorry. <laughs>
That's great. That's our, hey, don't get don't get mad at me. Our federal, you know, we we joke about every agency. So, uh, so oh, yeah, everybody gets good. picked on here. Yeah. Oh yeah, including Steve. Steve doesn't recognize doesn't realize he's being picked on most of the time. He's just you know that old. But, <laughs> well, I, also Steve recognizes jealousy when it comes from Morgan, so he's okay with it. You know. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's get back to Ed. This is the Ed show. So, um, talk about applying. You know, what was the uh, you apply your legacy basically. You know, you're you're following in your dad's footsteps um you get hired what's the academy like back in that time what what date did you get hired on and what was the academy like yeah i get i get hired on september 9th 1978 and um the academy at that time was i i was with the very first class of officers that was mandated by massachusetts law to go to the academy before they went out on the street so that's how late Massachusetts was to the idea of training people before they actually were given a gun and a badge and put out on the street. And uh, so there were a number of people in my academy that had been on for four or five years. Uh, so it was interesting. And had never been to the academy? Yeah, right. Never. Yep. Yeah, it was an interesting state of affairs back then. Uh, and it was a 12-week academy um, and they were really learning their way. It was, uh, uh, they had some very, very good instructors. Um, and, and in some ways, it was one of the best academies ever because they brought people in to, um, to, to, to talk about cases that they had worked. Um, and, you know, at the time, the case study method was not something that you found in police academies. It was pretty much uh, talking heads. But uh, that was the first time I was introduced to a different way of learning, sort of by peers. And it was very, it was very effective. On the other hand, uh, the, you know, the, the, they had to bring people in from the Boston Police Department for physical training, uh, defensive tactics. Were, they kind of they kind of like piece things together for this first uh, class. But it, it was, uh, I made some great friends there, and, and uh, we were very strongly taught on constitutional law and, uh, you know, the law of arrest and things like that. So I felt I was pretty prepared when I left. You took that with my experience in the hospital, dealing with all of the medical issues. Uh, and, you know, I strongly see the, the UK has a system that, that sends people to hospital emergency rooms while they're in the police academy. And I, I really think that's the type of example we could follow here in the United States, understanding uh, dealing with families and people in crisis in an emergency room is actually a really good uh, process to go through before you get out on the street. Especially <clears throat> mental health. That, that has been one of the biggest challenges for police departments dealing with the mentally ill since they were... Uh, uh, they quit institutionalizing the mentally ill and they're trying to figure out how to mainstream that. That's been a huge issue from even from a community policing standpoint. Right. Yeah. You know, should police officers actually be the ones responding to uh, folks who are mentally ill as opposed to, you know, healthcare workers? That's kind of one of the debates going on. Yeah, it really is. And I, you know, I remember David Brown in uh, Dallas after the shooting of his officers saying that you're asking us to do too much. I, I, I know most of the large city police department chiefs in, in, in the United States, and I don't think there's one of them that would say we couldn't use some psychiatric assistance out on the field. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we welcome, I think they welcome that kind of, uh, that kind of backup, but you can't throw, uh, you know, I mean, in a hospital, I, I, you, you'd get a call into one of the psychiatric patients' rooms, and the nurses would be saying, call security to, to, hint, to deal with this guy. So there are people that get out of hand, and even trained professional psychiatric um, people can, sometimes need 
someone to sometimes it's an intern i mean a uh, an orderly you know that, that that's that's uh tasked with doing that but uh these people are violent and you don't want to get hurt no matter who you are you know so so that and i tell you that was i i remember as a trooper steve i know you did too probably when you're a police officer when you visit those uh uh emergency rooms on a Friday night or weekend night when there's been shootings and fightings and stuff. It's a great lesson to learn how to deal with the public. And, but let's put this in context too. You're not a small guy, Ed. How tall are you? I'm six, six, <laughs> well over two fifty. <laughs> and, and, and Steve, you're what? Six, two, six, two. Yeah, and I'm I'm over one ninety. Let's just leave it that. <laughs> yeah, I'm the Quite short, a bit over. I'm six foot. I'm the shortest guy in this crowd. Oh my god, you know. But that that was it too. So Ed, you come out. You're a pretty big guy to begin with, right? So you get through the academy. What's it like hitting the street that your father just you know a year before, you know a couple years before was also working? What's that feeling like? You're really truly following in your father's footsteps. It was very exciting. I, I, they they assigned me to late nights. I, I worked a um, a walking uh, beat in in a really tough area of the city. There were, you know, dozens and dozens of uh, bars that I had to close at, at two a.m. and um, and strip joints and uh, point. You know, it was a pornography store and a. It was a really tough tough section of the city. Um, so you learned a lot and you learned very quickly. Uh, First of all, you learned how to stay warm in uh, January in Massachusetts <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning. As you're walking uh, a foot patrol, yeah. right? Walking a bee. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it wasn't easy, uh, but uh, but it was great basic training, and you sort of ran into everything you can possibly think of very quickly. So it was uh, you, you got a lot of education. Uh, you weren't a rookie for very long in the city of Lowell. The other thing I like to say is Lowell's favorite sport, the one that that Lowell is known for is the Golden Gloves. We have the uh, New England, the national here uh, every few years, but every year there's a huge Golden Gloves uh, competition, and people like Marvin Hagler fought here, and you know a lot of really Mickey Ward is from Lowell and really great people. But uh, but I like to say that the the kids in Lowell practice boxing all day, and then at night they practice on us. You know, so <laughs> yeah. it was uh, it was a rock and roll kind of place back in the seventies and eighties. It was, it was a very different time, and that was kind of expected from a, from a beat cop at that time, right? right yeah, right, yeah. They, I mean, there was no such thing as pepper spray or a taser. Uh, they gave you a stick, a little tiny, like 14-inch wooden stick and, and a pair of handcuffs, and they said, you know, go Just go, big enough go to go piss somebody off who's going to use it to beat you with. <laughs> exactly. Well, they could take it off you, too. That's a, That was the thing <laughs> I was worried about. <laughs> oh, my Were God. You a, were you a one-man walking patrol, or did you have a partner? No, one man. Uh, and on the late night shift, even when I went into a car, it was all one-man operations. The the uh, the evening shift had two people, but we we were always and we prided ourselves on that too because yeah. you had to live by your own wits, you know. So while you're on patrol, what's one of the hairiest things? What's one of the first big things you got yourself into? You know, as a patrol officer, there were so many of them. Uh, uh, the first night I was on, actually, uh, there was a huge structure fire, um, and uh, Skip Hunter, who was my partner at the time, and I responded to it, and um, we thought there were people on the first floor. The The building, this was a, a three-story tenement, uh, two sides, so there were apartments, there were six apartments on it, and uh, we couldn't get near the second floor because the, the, the flames were, were blowing out the windows. 
Uh, so we get inside, and I got to the point where I had to pull the coat up over my head, my my heavy reefer jacket, because my my hair was being singed. Um, so we got people out of there, um, you know. So that was that was really one of the first things I got I got involved in that was uh, that was unusual. Uh, but you know, I, there's just so many stories of uh, you know responding to shootings, uh, having. You know, back then, um, <laughs> somebody said to me, have you ever been shot at a couple of years into the job? And I said, yeah, I've been shot at. And then I started thinking, geez, each time I was shot at, it was a police officer shooting. <laughs> uh, they were shooting at a car that was racing away, or they were shooting at a suspect that was fleeing at the time. I mean, there was a lot of gunfire that happened back then, and I was jumping over bullets like, uh, you know, like a like a cartoon uh, character, you know. So, uh, you know, there were things that happened back then. It was uh, it was a rough and tumble time, and uh, there wasn't a lot of documentation of what went on. It was uh, it was a tough time. You know, and there was, there's, uh, you know, today's atmosphere, there's a lot of uh, anti-law enforcement sentiment out there and different things going on around the country. But I love the fact that when Morgan just asked you what's one of your best memories of one of your first experiences, you talk about saving people. You didn't start talk about talk about gun battles and, you know, everybody thinks cops get out there to be tough guys. It really is about trying to help the public. That's why, you know, you're called a public servant. So thank you for bringing that up first, because that's what the majority of professional law enforcement are out there trying to do is to help the public. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another story, and one of the first things I went to was a uh, was a terrible motor vehicle accident. And I it was at a time when there were a lot of calls in another part of the city. So I was by myself and um, they sent me out to Rogers Street uh, for a motor vehicle accident. I the car was completely wrapped around a huge tree and uh, completely destroyed, and it was still smoking. Now, I had worked in a hospital for four years, and I had moved dead bodies around. I had seen amputations, shootings, everything you can think of. But when I got there, I was by myself. There was nobody else there. And I had to pry the door open, and uh, I tried to find the victim, and I couldn't find him. He wasn't inside the car. Well, I know somebody was driving the car. It couldn't possibly get there. Uh, and then I heard a moan, and I had to climb under the under the uh, front seats and up underneath the dashboard. He had hit the tree so hard that his body had been propelled under the dashboard and up against the uh, the uh, firewall. Um, it, 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 I, they hit, the firefighters had to come in and cut the dashboard completely out to get him out of the car. Wow. And I, I can I can to this day remember the. The, the you know the moaning and the smell and the blood that was um, that was I was in close contact with and trying to trying to uh, deal with him and I remember thinking how different it was from the um, you know the sort of antiseptic atmosphere of the emergency room you know when they brought people in there they brought them in and they were injured but they were being put in a clean bed in a clean room in a place where where everything was under control this was very much not under control and it really struck me as a an unusual you know kind of a feeling yeah so 
I'm going to diverge for a second. Quick story. You talk about that. I was, when I was a rookie, got past being a rookie police officer in Salina, Kansas, but I was taking my EMT training and you talk about working with uh, mentally ill and someone's, I got to know the people down at the ER really well because we did our rotations through there. And one night we get a call about one of the uh, mental patients. Somebody had just escaped. They're trying to hold him down in the middle of the street. So I come running up there. I'm thinking, I'm going to do my job. I'll try to help him. And one of the nurses, if you guys know what Halidol is, it's a powerful way to make you just go really loopy. So they said, I've got the Halidol. And all of a sudden I felt somebody pulling down the back of my pants. And I went, no, no, wrong one, wrong one. <laughs> uh, that explains uh, a lot about you, Morgan. Well, I was, I was two, two inches away from uh, uh, from uh, spending the night at the uh, hospital there. So no, it, well, it's I, hilarious. I, I can tell you I had a similar experience in the emergency room. I got to know the nurses in there so well that I married one. <laughs> yeah, I'm married to a nurse also. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. I yeah. dated a few nurses back in the day, but uh, I ended up marrying a dispatcher. So uh, <laughs> there we better. go. Keep it in the family. Yeah. So, so Ed, how long were you on patrol? Because I know you went up to, you know, we talk about getting into detective. Um, what made you want to become a detective? Well, my, my boss, who was the commanding officer of the shift that I was on, uh, became the chief. And um, so I was on the street for three, three and a half years as a patrol officer. Uh, But he was putting together a team uh, to handle certain priorities that the city had. And so he asked me to uh, to go into the uh, vice and narcotics uh, unit. Uh, So I was only 25 at the time. Uh, But, uh, you know, it was it was at a time when narcotics were becoming the biggest problem in the city. And um, I thought that I could make a difference there. So. You know, I was part of this team. I, I just, I, I really hadn't thought about it because normally you didn't go into a detective unit until you were on at least five years, maybe seven to ten. You know, uh, but I got lucky and uh, and got put in. What kind of problem you said you're having? You, narcotics. What, what kind of drug problems were you having in Lowell? What What was the issue? Heroin and cocaine. Um, it, it started off with heroin. Heroin had always been a big problem in Lowell. And ultimately, Janet Reno uh, came to the city and mentioned Lowell was a source city for heroin and cocaine in New England. So we were a main hub, um, largely because of the highway systems and the population of the the city. Um, It started out uh, when people who lived in New York, uh, you know, that had access to um, to heroin, uh, would use the highway to run back and forth and pick up New York quarters and bring them up to, to Lowell and then, uh, put them in plastic, heat sealed plastic bags and sell them at a profit. So that was the very first group of traffickers that we dealt with. Um, and it was, uh, and it was, a you know, it was a very, very serious problem. And that was about when, when did you get promoted? So you joined in 78, so you would have been made detective around what, 82, somewhere around there? Yes. Right. It's 82. Yep. Yeah, and Steve, you were still on uh, West Virginia Police Department at that time, right? No, by then I had uh, switched over to the Railroad Railroad. Police and was in Norfolk, Virginia. Yeah, because we got to talking about, you know, when's the first time you ever saw heroin, Ed? Because, I mean, Steve will tell you, he'll regale you quick about his big dope bust, you know, back when he was a patrol officer. When's the first time you ever saw heroin? Uh, When I was in the uh, police car, in the cruiser, I uh, I actually saw heroin before I saw uh, cocaine. so there was, you'd find heroin and pills. Uh, the big pill back then was Black Beauties. All the guys were yeah. were carrying Black Beauties around. Um, but I, I um, 
you couldn't be out on the street very long without finding somebody cooking up uh, some heroin to shoot up. Uh, so that was the first time mm-hmm. I saw it and learned how it was administered and all that. And and then I remember taking one particular guy. Actually, I knew who he was. He he, he uh, was a very well-known member of the community and still is. Uh, but I grabbed him and um, he had a he had a a small, you know, a plastic bag tied off. And I, I remember looking at it thinking, oh, so this is this is cocaine. Uh, it clearly wasn't heroin, you could tell. So, Who who would knew Loyal was such a source of everything from golden gloves to heroin and coke? You must have, I mean, I, I say that not jokingly, but I mean, that must have given you a very broad perspective of all the different things you could get into in policing. It's like you almost had a little bit of everything going on in Lowell. Yeah, the DA's office in Middlesex County, which is the largest county in the country, uh, in Massachusetts, I should say, uh, they they often said that uh, Lowell had really good crime, which wasn't really an endorsement of of our efforts, I guess. But uh, yeah, there was, and it was a significant prostitution. Come to Lowell, we've got great crime. We've got better crime than Boston. That's right. No, we we had a very bad prostitution problem uh, run by pimps that were up up and down the East Coast. So I got to know those guys. I worked with police in Florida and Washington D.C. on these. Uh, uh, do they, you'd call them human trafficking organizations now, but back then it was uh, it was uh, the Man Act violations we were working on. You do this for a while, but uh, you you kind of after once you hit detectives, you kind of stay in in investigations all the way up through captain, right? Till you became until you ran. Yes, the that's correct. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, when I was at the end of my my time as a captain, I, I had run the uh, narcotics unit and organized crime unit for uh, for ten years. I had a really strong sergeant, um, and that's when uh, Jack Sheehan, who was the chief at the time, asked me to create a community policing program. So I was technically at the end of my time as a captain. I was technically in charge of the organized crime unit and. We were finishing up some big cases at the time, but my my attention was drawn to uh, the Clinton era community policing. Actually, it was George Bush actually that that first put money out on the street for this kind of policing, and then a few years later, uh, Clinton put big money out. Yeah, that was all part of the cops and cops more, wasn't it? The grants, right? Yep. Yeah. Before we get into the community policing, let's talk about organized crime, OC. What, what was some of the OC cases that you worked in Lowell? I mean, are we talking about uh, Irish mob guys like, you know, that were related to Whitey Bulger? Or, you know, we're talking about the families out of New York, you know, which we had uh, Dominic Polifron on, who was the uh, ATF agent who did the undercover work on Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman. So we're talking about, you know, the Gambinos and the Columbos. What was, what was the issue in uh, Lowell? Well, it was um, it was Whitey Bulger's group. Um, they they had a uh, a couple of guys, uh, Jackie McDermott and Byron Vlahakis, who were running the rackets here in in Lowell. It, I get into this by by getting a complaint from high school uh, a high school student. Um, a mother called me and said her son had come home with gambling uh, paraphernalia. So I went to her house. I looked at it. They were football cards, and at the time. Uh, the the OC guys had actually given football cards out so they could be sold in the high school, and they were making money off them. Um, we followed. <laughs> it's funny. We uh, we actually followed them back to the printer that was making them, and uh, after we got to the printer, we started to see how wide the organization was, and then very quickly, um, this guy comes in after we do surveillance for a few weeks. We find the office, the central office for the, the gambling operation, 
And then we find the payoff place. And I remember sitting, actually, they stuck me in the trunk of a car and knocked the rear whoa, tail whoa, whoa, light whoa, out. Wait a minute. You're six yeah. foot six. Believe stuck it or not. You it was a big car. car. It was, you got to remember, it was the 70s, but I was in the trunk of the car. Um, <laughs> they pulled it into a parking lot so I could watch the entrance to this bar called Lefties, by the way. So it was, uh, it was a, you know, pretty much uh, central casting at that place. Um, but we, this guy drove in in his own car. We ran the plate on the car. He's a big guy, clearly, uh, you know, respected. And um, when we ran the plate, uh, his name was Charlie Rasso, um, and he come out. He came out of Somerville. So uh, I went down to meet the state police uh, at the DA's office. And when I said Charlie Rasso, they they pulled out pictures. Bobby Long was a lieutenant at the time. He pulled out photographs of Whitey Bulger sitting with Charlie Rasso at the garage uh, uh, in in the North End. So um, I got sucked into a an incredibly complex um, series of wiretaps and uh, and big cases that resulted in arresting you know McDermott and Vlahakis, but also um, knocking over a uh, an armored car uh, robbery team. Um, we took out. Um, a, a few people that actually, uh, B- Billy Bonowski, who ended up killing Jackie McDermott over there, assassinating him and shooting his son, uh, we took him out. Bonowski was working for the Somerville mob, and um, and then eventually went down to Providence, Rhode Island, to the Patriarca family, and grabbed one of their capos, a guy named Bobby DeLuca, as part of our investigation. So it really went right up to the Italian uh, organized crime people. Can you uh, just give us a, a, a thumbnail overview of who Whitey Bulger was? Yeah, Whitey was a gangster in uh, in Boston. Uh, he he grew up in South Boston, which is a a tremendous neighborhood of uh, great people. But there was a really nasty uh, criminal uh, activity occurring there in the uh, 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, Whitey came from a very well-known family. His uh, brother Billy was actually the Senate president, but Whitey was sort of the bad seed, and and um, he was in gambling. Um, he got heavily into drugs, and um, and then ultimately um, he had corrupted a couple of uh, FBI agents in the in the Boston office, and um, was was able to operate with impunity at a time when we were chasing them. Uh, there were FBI agents actually diming out our investigation to the organized crime people. And I could tell you some really unbelievable stories about me working with the DEA and DEA's. One time, DEA had had uh, put a, a listening device in Whitey's car, and um, and it went dead after about eight hours. And a couple of days later, the agent, a guy I knew really well, Steve, I won't use his last name here, uh, but... Uh, he gets a package at the DEA office in Boston, and he opens it up, and it's the listening listening equipment, uh, so, and it was addressed to him personally. So not only did Whitey wow. send the thing back to the right agency, but he sent it to the specific officer that planted it in his car. That's how much information those guys had. And if if you've uh, for our listeners, if you've seen the movie Black Mass, that's a, the. That's the biography of Whitey Bulger's story there. I'm not sure how accurate it was. Pretty accurate. Was it? Yeah, I know the author. Yeah, he, he did a great job. He, he was very close to it. And I, I believe that uh, I believe the charges on Whitey came from DEA, didn't it? That, that he was a fugitive for so long on? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Danny Dunahue was, uh, uh, is a tremendous agent here, and uh, he was one of the main 
people on that. Uh, he did a great job. Well, Very yeah, good. a couple folks ended up going to prison over that. In fact, I think one of them was just getting out um, a while back, one of the FBI agents. But, you know, it, n- nobody hates bad cops uh, more than good cops, right? And so it right. makes it very difficult to do your job. And, look, nobody's immune from this. A lot of people have had their issues. So we're, we're not picking on the Bureau. But in this yeah. case with Whitey, it was two, you know, two agents that basically submarined all the work you guys were doing. You know, it's, it's very right. hard to catch somebody when they're always two steps ahead of you. Right. No question. And the bureau's completely changed, and they've been incredibly helpful in in, in rooting out organized crime since then. Uh, but you know, some of the troopers I worked with are still angry at them. I, I've, I, I'm not. I, I I think every organization has has bad people in it, and uh, the tragic thing is these guys just happen to be in a place where they could cause enormous damage. And actually, you know, there were allegations of of uh, homicides that were set up. Uh, as a result yeah. of the corruption, so it's uh, it's tragic, it really is. It is. Well, you got to work a lot of good stuff, and so I mean, obviously, as captain, what at what point uh, did the city of Lowell decide we like you, Ed? We like you to become commissioner. I mean, who was drinking that time, and how much did they have to drink when they said let's <laughs> let's have you a lot? <laughs> right. Yeah, I was like I was thirty seven, I think thirty four, thirty seven. That's young for a for a major. Yeah. That's a major city. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't. Under, well, here's what happened. Um, I, I, I went to school. I, I, I went to the Police Executive Research Forum's uh, Senior Management Institute for Police. And I was introduced to these ideas that I first railed against. I, I was like, you guys, you guys have never been on the street. You don't know what you're talking about. But at, at the end of that um no, actually, it was a three-week course, uh, three weeks, but it was residential, and you um, and you you know you got to meet. You stayed in a quad with uh, police officials from other parts of the country, uh, so there was a lot of learning that went on um, among ourselves and in our in our apartment. And then uh, when we got to class, uh, we were introduced to these new concepts. And, and what were these radical new concepts that you, as a veteran of working the street and Lowell, said? You guys are crazy. What is it you're trying to pull on me here? <laughs> well, you know, they, they introduced us to um, the, the the whole idea that law enforcement wasn't the only game in town. And I had always thought of, thought of myself as a law enforcement officer, somebody who, you know, like Jack Webb in the old Dragnet movies made that arrest, don't arrest decision. And um, and I, I could, I can't count the number of times I said, ma'am, this isn't a police matter, call your lawyer. But I was talking to somebody that had no capacity to call the lawyer and, and I wasn't doing any, I wasn't providing any assistance to people that really needed it. So what, what this group t- talked about, um, was really built upon Sir Robert Peel and the Peelian theories. And I was introduced to that for the first, I had heard his name before, but I had never, even though I, you know, eventually got my, my bachelor's degree and then master's degree. Um, I, I didn't really, I really wasn't taught in college about that, those concepts. Right. And so I started to think about that. And then I, I talked to guys, um, there was a, a, a deputy chief, uh, Buzz Sawyer from, uh, Tampa, Florida, and he started to talk about drug holes that they had in Tampa and how they how they effectively dealt with them. And 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 this was really near and dear to my heart because I had a drug hole in the city that we could go to every day. We literally arrested 40 people there one day. 
And by two o'clock that afternoon, we arrested them in the morning. By two o'clock that afternoon, there were 40 more people there mm-hmm. uh, doing the same thing. So arrest and prosecution wasn't working. These were perennial problems for years. Um, he, he, he told me a story about, you know, putting lights up and cutting trees down and, and not giving them a place where they could hide. Uh, so environmental changes that could be put into place. And uh, damn, if I didn't come back to the city and try that, and it worked, you know. So um, I think the professors really made it clear to me that if you were to provide service that was effective beyond arrest and prosecution, if you were to look at what worked and implement that in partnership with the community, because we used to look at that community as sort of the enemy. You know, we could down there thinking that they were all in cahoots together. The truth of the matter is most of the people, even in the toughest neighborhoods, were crying out for help. They they didn't want to be under the under the control of these criminal organizations. And um, and if you teamed up with them, it could be a very powerful partnership. It could also, and they made that clear to me, you know, it it could also make you somebody that um, had a lot of had a lot of drag in the community. In other words, you. You, you could become valuable to the people and they would reward you for that. And so I first looked at it as, you know, the police need more money. We need more budgetary assistance. We need support of the people to get to get the work done. But ultimately what happened was I became synonymous with um, a form of policing that people really liked and that was actually cleaning up the city. After I got to tell you something. This isn't like I came in and cleaned up the city. I had been in that city for uh, 20 years at that point in time and hadn't done a very good job at all like we were but but it was because we were focused only on arrest and prosecution as soon as we took a step back and started to think about crime prevention in a in a in a nuts and bolts way I, you know crime prevention when i was first on the job was captain kelleher going around to schools telling kids why they shouldn't commit crime i didn't see that as anything i wanted to be involved in you know that's not that's not what i'm talking about but when you talk about you know, going in and using SEPTED principles in a neighborhood, right? Uh, crime prevention through environmental design and changing the the environment for people or uh, strategically closing down bars that had been running uh, law- lawlessly for, for decades. I mean, you know, we would, there were certain bars in Lowell that were full of pimps and drug dealers and guns. And, and the, the way we handle that is we'd go in and we'd make arrests every week. We never really targeted their liquor license. And so when you look at data, right, and you see a crime hotspot and you see right in the middle of that crime hotspot is the Laconia Lounge, you start thinking, well, what can we do here? And it wasn't secret. You know, I went in and said to the owner, listen, you've got to stop serving underage. You've got to stop over serving. When I said that, he actually started laughing because everybody in that bar was totally out of their mind drunk on a Saturday night. There was no such thing as over-serving. But <laughs> we could use the liquor license rules to, to to enforce that. And all of a sudden, when that bar when we closed that bar, the crime in that neighborhood disappeared. You know, so it, it's just like common sense stuff, you know? There is a very strong parallel to what they did over in Iraq. And they realized, too, um, uh, one of the special forces guys was doing analysis of the crowds that were gathering. And they realized... 
what enabled these crowds to stay around and then turn violent was the fact is after you'd be there for a while, the street vendors would show up and the people serving food and water. They made one simple change, which is, nope, run these guys off. You can't set up the food. And what happened after an hour or two? No food, no water, no support. What did people do? Exact same thing you're talking They just disperse. So the, these rules are applicable not just to the law enforcement, but to military, you know, to counterinsurgency. Um, you know, and what you're talking about goes back to Sir Robert Peel, the father of modern policing, you know, the first commissioner of the London Metropolitan Police, which we had two of my friends from New Scotland Yard on. We we're talking about the London train bombings, which I'm going to ask you about, you know, as we get into this. Um, and uh, yeah, it's the same thing. Community policing is a public private partnership to solve common problems. Everybody lives in the same community. The only difference between the cops and the citizens, the cops are paid full time to do the job, but it's incumbent upon everybody to do it. And that's kind of what you're getting at when you said, talk about the community policing part. Cause you said you, you did this, but now technically you were doing the, uh, community policing. When you started doing that, what kind of pushback did you get from the troops to begin with? You know, your officers and other people that were thinking, oh, we're just going to go in there on Friday night, you know, and arrest people. And you finally realize you can't arrest your way out of this. Right. It was a, it was a very interesting uh, experience. Um, so I, I put a team together that included the union president and a few of the bomb throwers, you know, the, the naysayers in the department. Uh, I knew these guys well. And I said, hey, we're going to try something new here. Do you want to help me in an experiment? And, you know, to their credit, they said, yeah, let's let's give this a shot. We'll give it a try. So the very first district station we put in was extremely effective. We put seven walking routes in the worst area in the city that was that was full of drug dealers and prostitutes and all sorts of disorder. And uh, and we uh, we cleaned it up. I could tell you stories about how the how the community reacted to it. But internally, um the, the, the when the when the local newspaper ran a, an, an article on it, um, it it got a lot. It raised the ire of the traditionalists in the police department, and they started calling our guys the grin and wave squad, right? So <laughs> they were so they, we they were so one, disgusted we the with what we were the doing. smile and wave, you know, smile and yeah, wave. exactly, grin, grin and wave squad. Yeah. So um, what I realized very quickly was you couldn't do community policing as a special program; it would never be accepted. It had to be something that you expected from every police officer. And so I, I remember having a, a, a debate at two o'clock in the morning with this sergeant who was a very well-respected guy and a very good traditional cop. And, you know, he just could not wrap his mind around this. And he said to me, you're expecting us to get out of the police car and spend all of our time talking to people and solving problems. Uh, how do you expect me to do that with all the crime going on? And, and I said to him, Sergeant, I would be happy if you only did it 5% of your time. I'm not looking for I'm not looking for a big commitment from a guy like you, but I just want you to keep your mind open to it. And, you know, he kind of got that and he he walked away, ended up being all right with it, you know. But it, there was enormous organizational change that took place. I was a big adherent of all of the uh, textbooks at the time on good business practices, you know, uh, TQM and um, total quality organizations. And, and, yeah, see, we have a rule yeah, on the yeah. podcast too. If you use an acronym, you got to define it. The feds are the worst okay. about it. They start talking yeah, that's right. code. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Two, and, um, and there was a military uh, lieutenant general um, who ran a uh, flight wing in uh, in Europe, 
Uh, he wrote a book called uh, The Five Pillars of TQM. And I really liked his book because it was about a military organization changing. And uh, I used that extensively when I was trying to convince people. But But what happened was we had to do an enormous change management initiative in the police department. We had seminars, we had offsites, we had ropes courses, we brought guys out for the kind of training that corporate America was seeing at the time. Um, and and it was it proved to be very effective in the long run. So, and and at what point did did it start becoming apparent? And what at what point did it become the opportunity to become? And now in Lowell, it's superintendent, right? Is the top job. Right, superintendent of police. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when were you a were you a captain or were you at a higher rank before uh, you got the opportunity to be superintendent? No, I was a captain. There was another rank in between, deputy superintendent. Uh, that I never, uh, that I never, they they reached into the captain's rank for me. Um, and and getting on the job and getting promoted in Massachusetts requires civil service uh, tests. So I had to top the test to be to be considered, um, and I was able to do that. Um, and then because of my work in community policing, the city manager reached out for me and, and it, you know, the, the, um, the old chief was leaving and, uh, the former chief, I should say. And, uh, and, um, and so they, they wanted to try something different. He was very traditional. Um, and, uh, they had seen your work with so- community policing and some of the success you were having, and that's the different they wanted to try. Yeah. Right. They wanted to try it because it seemed to be working in the neighborhoods. And uh, we had a really good record of crime reduction over the 13 years that I was here. So speak a little bit, too, about the history, because this is going to factor later when we talk about Boston. A lot of places um, like to hire from within. They don't like bringing in outsiders. Was Lowell one of those places they wanted to hire from within? They wanted to promote from within for that top job? Yeah, they, we had never t- we had never had a police chief that came from outside. And to this day, we haven't. They still don't hire from outside. So your only competition was what? Anybody else inside the department? Anybody else put in for the job? No. Would what, ha- what? You have to have three people compete for the job. There were only two deputy superintendents positions, so that automatically opened it up to the next rank. So there was there was one deputy at the time. There wasn't a second one, and then um, there were seven captains. So there were basically eight competitors for the job. Uh, that I had to test against. And, and you aced it, baby. You you became the top cop in Lowell. I did. What yeah, was that like when yeah. you got the news to say, congratulations, Ed, your world is changing. By the way, what's the average tenure of most chiefs of police or superintendents of police in, throughout the United States? It's three to four years. Uh, people don't stay too long. Um, I was definitely the, re- the exception to that rule, you know. So what was it like when you got the news? What what went through your mind and like, you know, oh, my God, be, be careful what you ask for because you just might get it? Or was this really exciting for you to think this is a chance for me, for me to really put into action all the things I've been talking about as a captain? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it was extremely exciting and extremely quick because I took the test over the course of a year. But I had been in an acting role starting in November um, of 1993. Uh, just immediately, the the chief um, just sort of d- talked to the city manager and said, "I'm leaving," and uh, left very very quickly. And um, before we knew that there was going to be an opening, I had been called into the city manager's office and asked if I would take the acting position. Um, and how, you know, out how of did that foolish... sit with the deputy who was above you? 
Uh, he was fine with it. Uh, he, he didn't want to be the chief. Uh, he and I had a long talk before I took the job, and uh, he he uh, he really didn't want to be the head guy. And uh, he turned out to be a very strong ally of mine for, for the first six or seven years that I was in. So we, you know, I had known George, George Ryan was his name, or is his name. I just talked to him earlier today, actually. And George is a, uh, a, a tremendous uh, cop, uh, strong leader and uh but but had no interest in the politics of the police chief's job so i was lucky in that regard um and and next thing you know i'm sitting in the chief's i remember the first day turning the lights off in the office as i was leaving and i was like holy shit how did this happen (laughs) (laughs) well you know that's extremely fortunate that george was was an ally because boy it could have gone a completely different direction yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've come into police departments that have a lot of dysfunctions to help study and, and reform them. And um, there's a lot of interpersonal politics that plays such a huge role, because if you if you're stuck in the same organization for your whole adult life and um, you have any different ideas of doing something different or, um, you know, you just want to change, you're really stuck there. It's almost like a divorce it's like a marriage you can't get a divorce from because of the, the pension and everything else. And right. uh, and that can lead to a lot of frustration. And a, and a lot of uh, interagency fighting there that just makes life even more miserable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, Ed, talk a little bit, too. You mentioned the union. There is a unique relationship uh, with unions and uh, executives in law enforcement that you don't see in other places. And, in fact, you don't see it in other parts of the country. You might see it on West Coast, East Coast. Not a lot in the Midwest, but... So talk about, because I'm assuming when you were uh, as a patrol officer, even a sergeant, you had your unions you belonged to at that time, but at some point you had to graduate out of that, right, when you became uh, command staff and executive? The first two years I was on, I was the uh, shop steward on the late night shift for the union, so I I played a role in it. Um, And when I first took over, uh, I had a really good relationship with the union president, and we did some really innovative things. But I had been asked to clean up a, a, a very dysfunctional police department, and uh, and I took that responsibility seriously. So I, I ran afoul of the uh, of the union after a few years, and uh, and then uh, it you know it, it's funny I had the best relationship of anybody, and then I had the worst relationship of anybody towards <laughs> the end, uh, you know, with the no confidence votes and things like that. So, you know, it, uh, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a progression of events. <laughs> yeah. It comes with the territory. And it, cause I remember yeah. too, that there's so many things about terms and conditions changing. Then you had to go back and renegotiate contracts. And uh, I mean, that had to be, in other words, it's one of those things, right? You wanted to make sure you had the support because if they were against you, it could be for a variety of reasons. Right. And one of the things I've seen cops, push back against, and you mentioned it earlier, it's just the issue of change. Now, we we like the way it is. We don't want to change. Well, right. guys, technology has changed. Attitudes have changed. Society has changed. We've got to change with it. Because uh, I remember doing um, a, a session. I was able to sponsor a session and actually be part of it with Lee Baca back when he was a uh, L.A. sheriff. And uh, his uh, the sister of uh, Condi Rice, uh, which was Connie Rice, and they yep. were talking about gangs and how they're like a disease vector. You had to work together. and But he made a remark, too, which was actually accurate, too. And he says, we can't arrest our way out of this. Los Angeles right. had a huge game problem. You can't arrest your way out of it. At some point, you've got to look for different solutions. Right. Um, and so while your superintendent 
you know, and you're working towards this. You started getting some experience, though, uh, right, with understanding uh, terrorism, understanding um, because not only was Boston a target, the surrounding areas, you know, like organized crime. So start talking about some of the uh, early exposures you started getting now to terrorism, maybe. Uh, and I don't know when you visited Israel and Ireland. Was that at Lowell or was that at Boston? But just talk about some of the training and the experiences you had as you as you got into the job of superintendent. Sure. I was actually, um, on 9-11, I was in New Jersey uh, with the colonel of the state police who were doing a training on racial profiling. And I was there with Ed Flynn and and a couple of other police chiefs um, from around the country. And we just did a few seminars. Um, So on the 10th, I had dinner with all those guys. And then on the 11th, um, I I woke up to the, the, um, you know, the, the planes exploding. And um, I, I, I went over to the class after the first one and I was sitting with Eddie Flynn, uh, when the second plane went into the Pentagon and Eddie was the police chief in, in Arlington at the time. So he jumped up from the table and ran out to get into his car and drive, uh, you know, the hundred miles back to, uh, to DC. Um, and I tried to get home. Um, I, I um, so I got, I got to see what was happening in the country. I got home. And set up systems in the police department. Um, a couple of weeks later, I, I was on the site. The Port Authority police asked for assistance, so I brought the first contingent of Lowell officers down to assist them. Um, I walked the site. I was there with the FBI when they uncovered the bodies of the six firefighters in the stairwell. Um, what, I, I, Ed, what was that like? And I mean, it's it's surreal for us because I was actually at the I was supposed to be at the Pentagon. We were at the Reagan building instead. I remember walking across the bridge. I saw the smoke coming up out of the Pentagon, but I, I didn't visit the site. Steve and I talked about, you know, where he was. But what was that like visiting that site? And, and what did it change in your mind and your thinking about how you were going to approach your job? A few things. The, the 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 visceral experience of being there and walking over the pile and and uh, the dust and and the uh, the smell and the, um, the 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 quiet you know it was it there were a lot of people doing a lot of work but it was incredibly quiet like a cemetery and um, and then you know there was one time when I walked up a side street and it was a street that. All the windows had been caved in from the explosion, and everything inside the place was locked in time and covered with three or four inches of that dust. Uh, but there were, you know, plates of food that hadn't been finished. It just showed how the whole world stopped at that point in time. And the, the other thing that I saw there was, you know, crushed vehicles, crushed police cars, flat, uh, crushed fire trucks, flat. But the, 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 the thing that struck me was a big hand, hand-painted sign on the wall uh, with, with spray paint that said morgue with an arrow going, you know, a particular way. And so I realized that um, really, you know, that was a war zone and that we were, as a nation, in a war, and uh, we had to react that way. So um, a few days after that, I, I, I accompanied five of my colleagues uh, to the director's office, uh, Bob Muller had just taken over, and I knew Bob from Boston. And um, we talked about the challenge ahead of us, and we talked about how um, police could act as a uh, force multiplier for for the bureau. Now, I already had a guy in the terrorism task force prior to that, um, 
very well-known sergeant up here in Lowell, whose dad was a, an FBI agent, and um, and he had been working uh, that area prior to the uh, to the explosion, so uh, or, the, or the attack. Uh, so uh, the bottom line was this: I I I really started to learn about terrorism. I went to a number of courses that were run um, out of. Um, out of the um, intelligence uh, community uh, through the FBI uh, that brought police chiefs around uh, the country together to learn about the national international issues that we had never really learned about before. Um, that was a, a week-long training down in Washington. Um, and then, um, you know, I started to get very active in a diverse community that we had, and, and we had... Um, Tom Daly did a couple of really big cases out of uh, out of the JTTF uh, fairly early that went on for years um, that got us directly involved in um, how the how the bureau did these investigations and and how we could help on them. So um, you know we get up to speed really quickly. Did you get the chance to make any trips outside the U.S.? I did. Um, it, years later, um, I well, actually, I was still in Lowell when I made my first trips to uh, to London. I've I've been to London a couple of times. Um, uh, the second time I went over was a few days after the uh, the two bombings. Uh, we had a chance to meet with the uh, commissioner, and um, he had a mock up of the uh, pressure cooker bomb that. Ironically, I would be facing a few years later. And I'll never forget what he said to me. I asked him, I said, how did you get these guys? And he said, you know, Ed, we never would have solved this case if it wasn't for video. And so when I was facing my own challenge, that was the biggest thing in my mind. You know, video is going to is going to make the difference here. Let's get focused on that right away. And we did. And it made a big difference. Was that Sir Ian Blair at the time? Yes. Yep. Yeah, I had a chance to meet him, and like I said, we two of my friends worked the counterterrorism command over at uh, Scotland Yard. So fifteen is what they called it. Same thing. We just had Steve and I had a great talk with uh, my buddies Alan Thomas and Graham Burridge. Uh, you know, simply the same thing, right? That they found these guys, and it's the terrorism planning cycle too. If you think about it, there's this whole kind of cycle they go through without knowing it. But one of the things they do is broad target selection, you know, evaluation. But then at some point they do rehearsals, and they were able to find all four bombers coming together a week beforehand because of video, they were able to see them practicing their rehearsals, you know, about what they were going to do. So yeah, you're right. That, that video became extremely important. Um, so you are at Lowell for what, 13 years, you said as superintendent, I mean, correct. Yep. How, how did, uh, and, and I remember the last year you were superintendent, uh, was 2005. I mean, going into 2006, that was the year the international association of chiefs of police held their, uh, international conference at Boston. Right. It's, 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 I, I remember it well. It was a great, uh, a great time. Yeah. And you had a guy working for, uh, you met him later. It was Billy Casey. Um, oh, yeah. In, yeah. He was at Boston at the time, but I've, I was telling you before in the pre-call, best time we had finding the real Irish bars, not, not these yeah, tourist yeah. attractions, right? Yeah. yeah Billy bars. knows. Yeah. yeah. You know, I knew Billy beforehand, actually. We were traveling in the same crew, um, I, I, had, I had met Bill Bratton and Kathy O'Toole, and I hit a couple of those Irish bars and met Billy. And then it seemed as though every time I went to a police conference anywhere in the country, Billy was sitting in the bar wherever I was. So uh, we got to know each shocked, other. Yeah, hard to believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did you go about becoming a and realizing the reason I set this up earlier? 
the departments, especially Boston, they don't like to hire from without. They like to hire from within. Kathy O'Toole uh, was there right before that time, and she was an outsider, right? She came in from the outside, right? Or was she no. was she through the ranks? Well, she was through the ranks, but she left. She left uh, and came back, yeah. Yeah, she left with Bill, went over to the uh, Metropolitan Police, then went to the State Police uh, when the Metropolitan Police and State Police merged. And then she came back to Boston uh, as a former trooper. Yeah. So how did you? How did that come about that you go from being superintendent of Lowell to getting a shot at the top job in Boston? Well, they had done it once before in Boston in the 1970s during the racial issues. They hired a guy named Robert DeGrazia, who was down in the Maryland area, um, and and they brought him up to clean up the BPD, and he, he did a he did a really good job. And I I remember watching what he did years ago, and and uh, and then they stopped. You know, they never did that again. Everybody else was from inside. Um, Tom Menino had been the mayor for twenty years, and and he liked to tell me that my job was the one job that could get him fired if I didn't do it right. So he was very focused on policing and how it was being uh, how it was being handled. Um, and I applied for the job when Kathy got it. So Kathy and I were friends. Uh, we were both candidates for the job. We kept in touch with each other. And when she got the call, I'll never forget it was a Sunday morning. She called me first, and and we had a long talk. And she said to me, "I I, I got the job." I don't know if I'm the lucky one or the loser here. And I started <laughs> laughing, you know. Um, so that was uh, two or three years before uh, my actually getting the job. So I had met Menino. I had gone through the community process. I I was pretty much a known quantity down there. When when Kathy uh, left for Northern Ireland, um, he uh, – I'm sorry, when Kathy left for Ireland, um, he um, – the mayor uh, – hired uh, or appointed a guy named David D'Alessandro, who was the former president of Hancock Insurance. I had never met David, even in the in the um, interview process. But David went out and interviewed candidates, and he called me and he said, would you apply for this job again? And I said, no, I, I, I already applied for it. I'm not going to apply again. You guys know who I am. If you want me to come down and talk to you, I'd be happy to. Um, so I never really technically applied for it when I got it the second time. But uh, he reached out for me. We had a conversation, and um, and a and a long interview at his uh, at his office. Um, and then he had to choose between a couple of inside candidates and three uh, outside candidates. There were three people that were my colleagues that I knew really well that that uh, were in the mix for it. And I became lucky enough to get the job. So you know, before we go into the Boston Police, some of the accomplishments that that. You achieved. There's the commissioner, the superintendent of Lowell Police. What kind of positive or negative impact did that have on the community? If you could just explain that a little bit better. Well, I I I, I like to think it had a very positive effect on the community. Uh, there were places that were no go zones in the city uh, for people, and um, and we were able to clean those places up. If you even today, if you go to Upper Merrimack Street, uh, I mean it's not. Um, you know, it's not Newbury Street in downtown Boston or or Fifth Avenue in New York, but it's it's a it's a respectable uh, community where the Cambodian uh, people have a, a number of stores. Uh, the the you know the bl- bloodshed that was going on there daily uh, is still not happening till today. Um, we were able to knock the crime rate down 
between four and six points every year for a 13 year period. So, wow. you know, over, over the course of, you know, we, we knocked it in half basically. Um, and so we the, were very, very proud of that. The, the Cambodian population uh, for our listeners came from a, a culture where the police were not their friends. They were basically their enemies that were very oppressive to the people. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I had an incident. Uh, I was a sergeant in the vice squad, and I was down in the, uh, the, the they called it the stroll, the, the area that the prostitutes worked in. And um, I had a, a Cambodian man come running up to me, and he had these, uh, you know, he had kind of native garb on. He wasn't, he wasn't dressed like a, like a person from Lowell. He's clearly from another country. And he, he ran up to me, and he kept squatting down in front of me. And I he was trying to talk to me, and I said, stand up, stand up. And he wouldn't stand up. He he kept squatting down. So eventually I got somebody that could speak uh, Khmer, and uh, the woman told me that, um, you know, he was being respectful to me. That was the way the Khmer Rouge were expected uh, to to be communicated with. So he just assumed, because I was there with a gun on my hip, that uh, that I was the same kind of a person. So we eventually got him up. It turns out he was he had been robbed uh, by a uh, by a pimp, uh, the, a prostitute and a pimp, and and we ended up arresting him and getting his money back. So, but it was a, it was a real lesson for me that you know that we were dealing with different people. Who had a whole different culture and uh, experience with uh, with police? And through your successes, you guys were able to turn around even the the, the attitudes of the business community. Yeah, we we were very active in the business community. They started an initiative uh, that was around the same time that we started lowering the crime rate. Uh, it was a public relations uh, outreach, and it helped. Uh, we have some real good business um, success stories. Um, one on a an eighteen story building that that Ang Wang had built here in in, in Lowell. Um, it was right at the intersection of Route Three and Four Ninety Five. Um, it was it was bought and refurbished uh, as an office building after Wang went went under. But they bought that building for one hundred eighty six thousand dollars, an eighteen story three tower building. Uh, no one would buy it. No one would go near it. They bought it. They pumped a million dollars into it. Um, they ended up selling it for $130 million after we put these changes in place. So for that particular real estate team. Uh, They're retired guys, and living on the beach on their yacht. <laughs> they're doing all right. They're doing all right. Yeah, but they formed a really tight partnership with us and actually gave us space for a, a training academy. We had 90,000 square feet on the first floor, and we had an unbelievable uh, training facility in there uh, for free for the 10 years that I was there. So. It was a good partnership. So, so through these positive changes, you're starting to, you know, you're making it a safer environment, which is like a magnet for businesses and corporations for to come back development. in. Yep. Right. Yeah. And you're hesitant to toot your own horn here, and that's what I'm trying to get you to do. Is I'm glad you told that story about the building, but uh, yeah. didn't you even have some businesses that made donations to the police department to to make some purchases for equipment? Yeah, we did. Um, there, there was a, a fight. Uh, we, we put these storefront precincts up um, in, in the in the tough areas. So there was a fight among the community groups. Everybody wanted one in their neighborhood. And I had to decide 
you know, and it was, there was one community meeting where there were 300 people at it, and I had to explain that, no, we're going to put it here, not where you want it, because of the, you know, it's an educational process. The city manager said to me at the end of it, I've never seen anybody turn a room around like that. I've never mm-hmm. seen that in my in my life. But we did it with data. You know, we said, listen, this, this is why we're thinking what we're thinking. You tell me what you think. And at the end of it, uh, people agreed. But that drove a, uh, a desire to have a, a district station. Uh, in in places where you know temporarily. So what we did was we uh, we bought a uh, command post. We bought a a big truck uh, out, outfitted like an office, and we would move that from neighborhood to neighborhood to inclu- increase the police presence. Let the uh, let the criminals know that we were there, and then be able to move it fairly easily. That that particular uh, piece of equipment was three or four hundred thousand dollars, and it was. It was bought from donations from businesses. It was incredibly. Uh, they 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 really supported a new form of policing with their pocketbooks. And those are going back to Sir Vince, uh, Sir Robert. All right, Peel. Sir Robert Peel. Yes, yep. some of his basics that <laughs> police are part of the public, and the public have to be part of the police as well. Right. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Well, and Ed, to play on top of that, that, the Heritage Foundation did a study of that, and the article was called The Police Behind America's Biggest Crime Drop from 94 to 99. Uh, you guys reduced crime in Lowell quicker than any other city over 100,000. I mean, that had to fit because that directly goes to what you're saying about that's economic development. The real estate prices start going up. It creates jobs. People don't want to put businesses where it's not safe. They want to put businesses where it's safe, right? So right. you drove that economic Sorry. development. It, that was kind of fun getting that Heritage Foundation report because it really, it really, um, in a sense, validated. Not these weren't theories anymore. These were things that these were policies and practices that actually worked. How did that report make you feel when it came out? And they really, you know, sometimes people get ah, that's just too much attention on us. But that was a really good big shot in the arm, not only for you and the department, but for the area as well to say these these practices really work. Yeah, you know, I had teamed up with academics at the very outset of this because I felt that that's where the smart people were and I didn't have all the answers, right? And um, and so it started out with uh, solid partnerships at UMass, and then um, I was approached by Frank Hartman from uh, the Kennedy School at Harvard, um, and we started to work with people at Northeastern and some of the other big schools around. Um, and and so I can remember, you know, being very open to studies. I said, "Come in and look at us and tell us what you think." And some of my colleagues, and and you know, at all levels, federal, state, and local police, said, "Are you out of your mind? These people are <laughs> going to kill you." And and I thought, well, you know what? Honestly, I don't mind if they point out things that we're doing wrong because I'd like to change them. So. You know, I don't take it personally if somebody criticizes something that's going on if they're smarter than I am. So I didn't worry about it. And and I so I was pleasantly surprised when Heritage came out with uh, such a positive uh, piece. I, I haven't been that lucky with every piece, but uh, but that validated something that, that I thought was working. And uh, it, it allowed us to double down on our strategies, both in Lowell and then ultimately in Boston. So it really led to my to my success later in my career. Well, it's like you said, the, the statistics and the data, that's the, the proof in the pudding right there. Right. Well, let's get into Boston now, because you said that um, that they interviewed you. We kind of did a side tour. Now we're coming, detour, we're coming back now. But yep. you didn't apply for the job because you, you, you said you'd done that already. But yet, 
how did they finally convince you to take the job? Was it still a, was it a dream job for you or was it a chance to go in? And I think you've said this before. You wanted to find agencies that were in crisis. You wanted to be able to, you know, what was it? I think it was Rahm Emanuel said one time and not, not being political folks, just the statement he made, but it's accurate. You never want a good crisis to go to waste. That's the chance right. to actually make change. Was Boston a, a dream job for you, or why did you take the offer when it was given to you, or did they make you an offer you couldn't refuse? You know what I mean? <laughs> no, we you know, we had to negotiate on. You know, there was no offer you couldn't refuse. Mio Menino was very, very uh, frugal. Uh, I guess you'd call him uh, when it when it came to contracts and things. So uh, that wasn't it. It was it was the challenge of moving to a. a a large police department, a, a police department that I had sort of viewed from the outside for many years. I, I was I was very close to Paul Evans, who was a police commissioner just before Kathy. And uh, Paul was the one that encouraged me to to apply for the job. So um, I, um, I, 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 you know, they, they clearly were the big uh, dog in New England. And uh, and so it was like going into the major leagues. I, I, I really looked forward to it. I, I thought it was a great opportunity. Uh, they also needed help. And I, you know, I've I've always been a big fan of this old house. And I, I feel like in policing, I became this whole police department because I was asked to fix a number of them, uh, both full time and part time. And um, and I, I fancy myself as being pretty good at that. Absolutely. So give us a comparison of the number sworn and civilian personnel at Lowell versus Boston Police. Right. So uh, Lowell has uh, 200 uh, at, at the at the top. It was 220. Uh, I would say it's right around 200 now sworn officers. Uh, Boston has 2,200. Um, and uh, and so it was, you know, it was a magnitude of uh, of 10 uh uh, difference uh, budgets were the same way. You know, I had a twenty or thirty million dollar budget in Lowell, and I had a three hundred million dollar budget in Boston. So was uh, it a, was it a tenfold increase in headaches? No, <laughs> you know, it's funny. It was not. I was surprised at how, in some ways, it was easier in Boston than it was in Lowell. Um, in Lowell, you were expected to maintain the relationship with all of the city councilors and the mayor as a department head. Even though technically they're not supposed to talk to you, the truth was they were constantly calling, and I was constantly dealing with them on different things. Um, in Boston, we had the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs, so I didn't, you know, that all came. The, the mayor was the one that dealt with the political structure in the city. I had one boss, and it was Tomanino. I answered to him, and uh, as long as I kept him happy, um, I was uh, I was good, and and I got to tell you, it was a lot easier keeping one person happy than eleven people. So. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> hey, did you ever wake up though one morning and go? Did you ever get that imposter syndrome? You feel like, you know, what am I doing here? You know, can, can I really pull this off? I mean, I'm going from a department of two hundred to a department of two thousand. I mean, did you? Did, and I'm not saying did you ever doubt yourself, but did you ever wake up feeling it's like, man, am I the guy for this? Every day of my life, from the time I was a security guard at St. John's. I mean, I, I, I fancied myself an imposter in every job I had. So it was just another step in the craziness that was my, uh, my professional career. What was the first big challenge you had at Boston? Was it, was it um, trying to get a, you know, a command structure aligned? Or was it, I'm thinking that you're from the outside, right? So you've got to deal with people who think, why didn't we promote one of our own from within? Did you have any of those kind of issues when you first started? You know, it's amazing the amount of respect that the commissioner gets in a police department like New York or Boston. I've seen it in New York. I experienced it in Boston. Um, I had very little pushback uh, when when I got there. Uh, 
And it wasn't until later that I realized that that was a bigger problem that I was perceiving uh, because, you know, there were a number of captains that were of that ilk, right, that that would say, wait a minute, we, we know everything that's going on here. Who is this guy, right? But the truth of the matter is in the day-to-day operations, um, they gave me what I needed. And, you know, I had – I didn't have – Um, anywhere near the personal run-ins with people that I had in the police department that I grew up in, right? Because, you know, you're the commissioner and you're in the commissioner's office and have the support of the mayor. So uh, people more or less uh, fall in line. Um, I I had a, you know, I I mean, I was used to debates and I, I was used to explaining myself and I did that. But it wasn't until, like, I was, you know, towards the end of my time when I really started to see that that <laughs> the uh, the knives that were out were behind people's backs, I didn't. They, there was no direct. There was no frontal assault, and and I, I felt very happy doing what I was doing. Um, but there was a lot going on behind the scenes uh, that I've since learned about. But it, it doesn't make any difference because I got done what I needed to get done. Uh, I had a longer run there than I ever expected, and uh, I. I had a, a an absolutely positive experience there. I can't point to one thing that would have caused me not to do it. I just loved my time there and loved 99% of the people I met. So let's talk about the threat environment because we now we've talked, you know, we've kind of come full circle. Now you're in Boston and you're the top cop in Boston. You're the commissioner. And just real quickly, just for a point of clarification, I, and sometimes it's just nomenclature. Is it just is it just departmental history? I mean, why is one guy a superintendent and the other one a commissioner? Is it is it a is it a civil service distinction or is it a, kind of a historical thing? Um, it's all of the the above. So the the history drives the legislation. Uh, Boston gets what they want in the Massachusetts legislature, and Boston decided that they should have a non-sworn person who answers directly to the mayor but commands the police. So you you don't wear a uniform as the commissioner of the Boston Police Department. Um, You you go in as a civilian, uh, but you're, you know— you are in charge of everybody in the department, both civilian and sworn. And then uh, you have one boss and you, and you go to the boss. And that person is known as a commissioner. That's true in New York, too. So commissioners usually are, um, you know, are that that go between between City Hall and the police department. They have their offices in their in the police department, mostly. Uh, but they they are a political being, too. So you were technically so you were a civilian then. You weren't you weren't a sworn law enforcement as the commissioner. I was kind of a hybrid uh, because I had been a police officer all my career. The retirement board said that I was doing I was substantially doing a police job because I was in the field a lot. I I made arrests you know with other guys. I never took the arrest myself, but I I was at the scene of arrests. I you know I I ran investigations. I. You know, so so the state recognized my role as an active police officer as far as the retirement system is concerned, even while I was in Boston. But technically, I didn't wear a uniform and I didn't have powers of arrest, powers of arrest. Wow. Well, that, that's going to factor later. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about weapons yep. and uh, stuff. But um, what was the threat environment like when you got to Boston? Boston was one of the cities, uh, you know, uh, Steve and I were in northern Virginia. One of the planes took off from Dulles. 
two of the planes, you know, obviously it took off from Boston. You know, we had the Twin Towers hit. We had uh, Pennsylvania. We had the Pentagon, which, by the way, a lot of folks don't realize the Pentagon, like you said, uh, is in Arlington, Virginia. It is not in D.C. And I had two of my friends that were first responders from Arlington County PD worked for Ed Flynn at that time. Yeah. And they responded out there. What was the threat environment like? So, you know, now you're at Boston. You're the you're the, you're the commissioner. What was the threat environment like when you got there? And this is 2006, right? Um, when you took the job? Yep. Uh, well, the, the threat environment was around uh, um, gangs and and homicides. It was uh, the biggest the biggest threat, the biggest dilemma, the biggest problem that we had. Um, and it was, you know, I got a clear mandate from the mayor that if these numbers start to go up, you're not going to be here much longer. So, I mean, it was just very, very basic that I was expected to do something about an inner city gang problem uh, that was pretty hard to wrap your hands around. Who are the main gangs at that time? What kind of gangs? Well, it's funny. Um, In Boston, they're mostly neighborhood gangs. So um, there, there is an influence of Crips and Bloods, but we had more Crips and Bloods in Boston, I mean in Lowell, than we had in Boston. In Boston, uh, the gangs are primarily, uh, you know, gangs with names like H-Block. So they come from Humboldt Avenue and, and, uh, and about three or four blocks, and, you know, they all, they all gravitate towards, um, uh, towards each other and fighting with other gangs, similar gangs in different parts of, of the city. So Roxbury had, uh, had a, you know, a number of gangs, as did Mattapan. Uh, Jamaica Plain had gangs. Uh, Selfie had gangs. Only not as uh, not as active in the organized crime and, and drug dealing as the you know the Selfie guys were more traditional organized crime. But then you get over to East Boston, and there was a significant presence there of Latin Kings. So as far as national gangs, I think Latin Kings had the biggest uh, footprint in the, in the city. So as you start to uh, you know, take over. Talk about there's three elements that are going to factor in later, but let, let's talk about the first thing is um, at that time, we the JTTF is a joint terrorism task force that's run primarily by the FBI, but you also had, did the BRIC exist at that time, the Boston Regional Intelligence Center? And then yes, also talk it, about it, the Fusion it, Center. Were they both one and the same, or did you have or those three separate things? Well, the JTTF was separate. That ran out of the FBI headquarters. The fusion center and the and the and the Boston Regional Intelligence Center were the same thing. Okay, they were in our office and they had been set up uh, the year before I got there by Kathy O'Toole. Explain the purpose of setting those things up and what the function. So tell us about the JTTF and then tell us about Brick and why Brick came about to be because that's going to play a role uh, in in the marathon bombing. So the JTTF's uh, responsibility they they really were. An example of uh, Bob Mueller, I believe he started them, uh, reaching out to local police departments and incorporating local officers in the national effort against terrorism after 9-11. Um, they, they were there before 9-11, but, uh, but they, uh, they really came to, uh, to, to pass. Um, and, and, you know, guys like me were just uh, begging to get into the game there. Um, so there was a lot of desire uh, to work on federal cases, and uh, there were some great examples of incredible 
cooperation and communication that didn't exist before. So the JTTF was a really good vehicle. Prior to that, the only time we worked with the feds on in a task force like that was, I mean, it'd be some OCDEF cases that we worked on, but primarily it was the bank robbery squad was the most long-term, you know, there'd be a couple of local cops on the FBI bank robbery squad uh, before 9-11. After you, that, it became really intense. Can you just uh, describe Force OCDEF very quickly? Yeah. Uh, so OSADEF stands for Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, and it was run out of the United States Attorney's Office. Um, it had membership from uh, all the federal law enforcement agencies um, because it was drugs. It was primarily DEA cases. And it was a way for local offices to get funding. You know, if we wanted to buy a kilo of cocaine, we didn't have $20,000 to spend on it. But uh, you could go to OSADEF and get that. Uh, and all of a sudden, you were doing cases that, you know, that, that had their origins in Colombia. It was really quite a, it was quite a effective process. It really was. It was uh, uh, getting the interagency cooperation was monumental. When I retired from DEA my last few years there, I was detailed to DOJ to run the OCDEF Fusion Center, uh, which was monumental. <laughs> was Ellen Scrivener there at the time, Steve? What was the name? Ellen Scrivener? No, it doesn't ring a bell. Okay. She, she, she later on, she took over uh, OCDEF. Well, you, you talked about the brick now. Kathy O'Toole put that in before she left. What what was the genesis that you said, you know, that came about saying, hey, we need our own uh, fusion center. We need our own intelligence center for Boston. Well, the idea, I, I mean, it wasn't just Boston. Those fusion centers were created. There were 74 of them at the time that I was there. So they were all over the country. Uh, the state had a fusion center out in Framingham. The idea of it was that um, it was a fusing it was a fusing together of high-level, um, federally procured or federally generated intelligence fused together with information from the street that would allow someone to make a really good determination as to whether, you know, uh, if if guys were taking lessons at a uh, at a um, at a uh, flight school and only interested in taking off, that information might become available to local officers uh, and they could push it up. And at the same time, information at the top level could could be shared with police. Now, I've got a, I ended up with a top secret clearance as a result of the changes that the federal government made. So I could see, um, you know, uh, tier line information from, from intelligence that was coming out from outside the country. Um, but um, the Fusion Center allowed us to sort of take off, take the content of it, share it with cops on the street, take the cops' information and ship it to the feds so that the government had a much clearer view as to what was happening. Yeah, because I know from doing the work, too, down at DOJ on information, nobody cares that it came from a cave or it came from a certain source. What they cared about, is there an active threat against my community? If so, give me enough information that I can deal with it. I think too many people, the only challenge with giving people clearances is sometimes you box them into a corner. They've got the information, but they can't share it with anybody else unless, and you talked earlier about that tear line, and that's that's a... It's one of those terms of art. So, um, to, you know, explain what a tear line is and why that's so important when you're wanting to share classified, you want to share unclassified information that comes out of a classified, you know, document. Yeah, well, it comes from the old uh, tele, tele, uh, telegraphs, uh, telephone, I'm sorry, telegraph systems, not telegraph. What the hell do they call them? Teletype. Teletype. Teletype, yeah. Well, you know, there's three forms of communication, telephone, telegraph, telecop, and now teletypes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I worked on a teletype system when I, when I was first on the police department. Um, 
but you'd get this rolling uh, sheet of paper that would come out, and uh, the first part of the uh, information that you'd get, well, one part of it was source information, which would tell you where it came from, and then the other part of it was the information itself. And to know where the source was required that you have a clearance, uh, because people's lives were in danger. You know, Johnny Smith in, 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 in uh, Tehran said this, right? Um, the people working the cases, by and large, don't have a need to know who it was that said it, like you said, Steve. So um, if you had um, if you had the right clearance, you could get the source. Uh, but mostly, uh, my guys were just looking for what was being said, and um, and that could go to, to uh, people that didn't have a clearance. So that was the way we, we separated it. But it, it is helpful to get a sense of whether it's coming from you know, a high-placed government source, or it's coming from a a guy that's in a bar, you know, kind of yeah. drinking it, you know? So it, it, it is helpful. You mean like Bill Casey at some of the conferences? <laughs> <laughs> or any of the three of us. <laughs> three of us. Um, so, so, Ed, so you've got this going. What was it like working your first Boston Marathon as commissioner? You know, what kind of, what was the, tell us what the planning was like the things that you did, the, all the preparation that went into putting on a Boston Marathon, which is, let me see if I get this right, it's it's actually called, it's run on Patriots Day, which is supposed to be the third Monday in April, and that's preceded right by a whole bunch of other things, like the Lexington and Concord battle and everything else, right? It starts off with that? Right, it starts off in the morning uh, where they, they have a reenactment of the shot fired around the world in Concord, and then... Uh, they have events in Lexington where, where the troops march to, um, and and you know a lot of people go to that. It, that's a five. That's a daybreak thing, so it's five six o'clock in the morning, um, and then when that's over, uh, it's a holiday too in Massachusetts. So today, uh, today actually is Patriots Day here, and uh, and so a lot of people are off from work, um, and and one of the big events that day it was two. There's usually two big events. One is the uh, the marathon, which is the oldest marathon in the country, and it, the one that goes by some of the big schools here. So there's a real party, festive atmosphere, um, and there's also usually a baseball game uh, later that day. So a lot of people will go to the uh, events in the morning out in Concord, come into Boston, attend the race for a little while, and then uh, make their way over to Fenway Park for a game. Hundreds of thousands of people in the city, uh, very you know, very much an international race at the beginning, but it, it becomes a local race after the elite runners come across. And almost everybody knows somebody that's running. It's a very popular pastime here. Yeah, as I've noticed, too, it's a lot of the Kenyans always seem to win that. You know, you talk about elite runners. They take off before everybody else, right, and then the other runners. Because these right. folks are finishing 26.2 miles in, like, two hours and whatever, 45 minutes. I mean, pfft. Right. You know, I'm, and you're talking. I'm looking at some old stats here. They were talking twenty three thousand participants. Right. Um, what was the other thing I saw here? Well, of course, I can't find it now. Oh. but as, as Steve contemplates its navel, we'll continue on with the podcast here. <laughs> ah, uh, here it is: here. the world's oldest annual marathon. Right. Not only the country, nice. but the world, man. So, yeah. what? Tell us about the planning for that. So, uh, the lead up to that. I mean, it seems like the planning for the next marathon begins when the previous marathon ends. It's like it's there's not like a gap, right? Or is there a is there like a natural gap, and then you start planning? What's that process like? 
Well, we have a special events division in the police department, um, and someone's working on the marathon every every week of the year. It, uh, it, it, you know, th- there's a very active organization here, the Boston Athletic Association. Tom Grilk is a director there, and is you know, Tom and I, uh, we, it was like we were partners uh, in in, um, in in a business. Uh, we were uh, together so often uh, in the run up to the event, uh, but. Uh, the people in my special events division would be over meeting with them all year long as they prepared for things, getting crowd estimates and the logistics with uh, John John Hancock uh, Corporation, uh, now Manulife, actually uh, sponsors the event. So um, it's, a, it's a real community uh, endeavor, and it takes a lot of work. Um, there are companies that we work with to bring in grandstands and bicycle racks and uh, other things that uh, metal detectors and things like that. Uh, there's the medical community that sets up these uh, tents that that are usually full with hundreds of people that have some type of heat exhaustion or uh, exertion, uh, sometimes heart attacks. You know, it, a lot of things happen in that race because it's such an exert. It requires uh, exerting yourself so intensely uh, that we need doctors and nurses there to take care of people. So. Um, and then the hotels are inundated with people, uh, you know, visitors coming in from all over the world to either participate or to watch people run. So it's uh, it's one of the biggest days in the city. So speaking of biggest days and drinking, which might go hand in hand in Boston, especially on Boylston Street, what, what was it like? Was it? I mean, did crime increase a whole lot? I mean, fights, drunks, or was it just everybody having a good time? Or did that become a serious crime problem as well when everybody started coming in? No, um, we made very few arrests. Uh, there's there's a lot of partying that goes on, but not a lot of violence. Um, the 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 biggest I, I remember speaking to a couple of the undercover detectives the day of the bombing, and um, you know the the elite runners had come in, the cameras were starting to go away, so I didn't think terrorism would be a problem at that point. Um, but I. Um, I talked to the undercover guys and I said, you know, how are things going on the pickpockets? We had had a pickpocket problem the year before. And so these guys were looking, were walking up and down looking for pickpockets, right? Um, I, you know, I said, just keep your eyes open and uh, see if we can do something about this. But, you know, you asked me about the first one that I worked and uh, that was uh, in 2007. And it, as we were in the stands with the mayor, um, I get an alert on my uh, on my uh, uh, mobile phone that um, there's been a mass shooting at Virginia Tech. So the Virginia Tech shooting happened exactly at the same time. So, you know, we had to pull together a group. We had to step, separate ourselves from the audience there. And um, because we're the, we're the largest um, university city in the country, we, we have more uh, students than any other city. Um, we considered this a, a threat that we need to, needed to respond to. So we started to communicate directly with the universities and their security directors and uh, put put things in place just in case this was another terrorist incident. So it was a very, you know, very stressful day, the very first uh, marathon that I was there. Um, other things happened over the course of the, the seven years that I was there on that day. Uh, so we were always kind of like, what's going to happen this year, you know? 
as a precursor kind of leading into that, that there are two people that are going to be intimately involved. And Steve and I had talked about this earlier. And we kind of approach, and anytime we start talking about the suspects, we need to put them in context and, you know, and give people's names. But we don't want to keep giving these guys airtime because they don't deserve it. But you can't tell a story without talking about the people involved in it. And, and the two of the key players in this right now are going to be uh, Tamerlan and Jokar Sarnayev. And Tamerlan appeared to be the main, uh, the main actor behind this. He was the principal behind this. He was obviously the leader, the older brother. So let's, let's set the stage for going into um, uh, April 15th, 2013, because there's some events that happen a couple years before that that really kind of put Tamerlan on the radar and start talking about things that he might be involved in. And the thing I go back to is really um, there was this communication from when the, when the KGB broke up in Russia, it became the FSB and the SVR, and the FSB is internal security. And back on March 4th, 2011, the FSB sent its first message about Tamerlan uh, to the FBI, the Liga, what they call the legal attache in Moscow. And then they sent the same thing to the CIA. Um, and so let's talk about that. You know, now we're going to ask you to, you know, take this knowledge and go backwards a little bit, but that's kind of a seminal moment, right? Because that squarely puts Tamerlan on the radar of somebody who has at least some nexus to terrorism. That's correct. Um, uh, the FSB letter, um, we didn't find out about until after, uh, Tamerlan had been, uh, killed in the gunfight in Watertown. But, um, the Bureau had received the letter. I, I found out later. Uh, they looked at it. Um, they sent agents out to interview him, and uh, he was on their radar screen. And, uh, you know, I, I learned also that the FBI has a very strict policy on whether they open a case or don't open a case. And um, there's a chart that they have to follow that um, makes it extremely difficult for a case to go forward unless there's real criminal activity observed. Um, so I got to understand that process a little bit, but I th apparently that's what happened in this particular case. They got the lead, they not only you know followed it up, but they also had internal meetings and came to the conclusion that since the FSB was a hostile foreign intelligence service, they couldn't put complete credence in what they were being told. Hey players, this is the end of episode 16, part one. Episode 16, part two will come out on Thursday. In the meantime, go visit us at patreon.com slash game of crimes. Murph and I put out what we think is probably one of our best episodes on Patreon. We do an adult review of the Gabby Petito case. We walk you through the way the investigation will probably be conducted, what's going to be important, everything from the crime scene to the manhunt. So go check us out, patreon.com slash game of crimes. Also, go visit our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. We've got our new merchandise store up and running. A lot of fantastic stuff there. Visit us on Facebook and Instagram, at Game of Crimes Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Game of Crimes. In the meantime, let your friends know about the podcast and stay tuned. I promise you, the next part where we dive into the investigation, Commissioner Davis is going to tell you stuff many of you have never heard before. So check us out, Episode 16, Part 2, Commissioner Ed Davis and the Boston Marathon bombing, The Inside Story, coming out on Thursday. Thursday.